So, as I said, we're in this teaching series looking at the story of Nehemiah and the exiles returning from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. Last week, Anna looked at weeping over the ruins. As they return and see this scene of devastation, their first response is to lament, to, to weep over what they'd lost. This week, we're looking at building altars in the midst of devastation. Now, I want to take you back to March, if you can remember March a very long time ago, beginning of lockdown. And we used this framework as a way of articulating the journey that was ahead of us. This was a sociologist, hopefully this will appear on the screen, a sociologist that was mapping out when people experience a collective trauma, there's normally this pattern that you can observe. So firstly, there's a heroic response, like people immediately want to do something to rescue the situation, to get by, to survive, to look after one another. And often you see the best of humanity in that moment of the heroic but after time disillusionment kicks in hope begins to fade exhaustion and um, reveals itself and that's the moment where we experience together not just individually collectively disillusionment and it's in the moment of disillusionment that seeds of hope are birthed that give way to this hopeful rebuilding that we're going to explore through this story of Nehemiah now we're going to talk about the disillusionment and the hopeful rebuilding mainly today but let's just start looking at the heroic. As I said, I think some of the best of humanity um, is seen in this heroic phase. But let me just name three desires that also are seen in the heroic phase. This is almost the fragility of the ego at play. So number one, the desire to be a hero. Number two, the desire to escape tragedy. And number three, the desire for a hero. So in that heroic phase, like in our brokenness, we think like to be loved, I need to be useful. And what's the most useful thing I could do right now it's to rescue everyone and to rescue the cosmos, right? So it's the fragility of the ego at play, as well as all the other good stuff that we see in that phase. Secondly, in the heroic, there's a desire to escape the situation, to deny that a tragedy, a trauma has taken place. So we get busy because we don't want to acknowledge the deep disruption that's happening all around us and happening within us. But I want to focus on the third thing is the desire for a hero. We want to be rescued, we want to be saved. Now we experience that individually, but we experience it collectively too. And we've seen it over the last six months. Let me just give you a couple of examples. So the clap for carers, this was a great moment. Thursday nights, we did it with our kids, 8 p.m., open the front door, on your doorstep, sort of round of applause. Come on, join me, round of applause. Just, there we go, a bit of energy for the studio. Do you remember those moments? Um, as, as people were celebrating the work of our frontline workers and an amazing thing that we were doing but can you see that underneath it more than just celebrating the NHS we were saying please rescue us from this hideous disease just look at the picture one more time look at the posture it's a posture of worship if I was to change the background a bit sort of do some airbrushing and just put some ambient lighting a couple of pews maybe Tom Eckershaw in the background with his guitar you would think that might be a moment of worship reaching up for a savior look at the imagery of the rainbow taken from the biblical story of Noah as God steps in to rescue Noah and his family and enter into this covenant that I will be faithful never again will a flood destroy the earth I am your redeemer so notice the symbolism and notice the posture it's the posture of worship 
Let me give you another example then, the Black Lives Matter movement, as people began to protest the systemic racism present in our society. But notice the posture again, taking the knee. Now, that posture in recent years has been popularized, particularly through the NFL. So look at this image. You've probably seen it. This is a couple of years ago, as a number of the players didn't stand for the national anthem. It was their way of protesting. No, we're not going to stand for this, for the systemic racism that's present in our society, in our nation. So rather than standing for the national anthem, we're going to bend the knee. But this is more than just an act of protest, because if you look at the imagery, the posture, the symbolism, it actually goes way back from the last few years. I want to take you back to the 1st of February, 1965, Selma, Alabama. It was a march. It was a protest. People were being arrested. And then Martin Luther King bends the knee. Now, this posture was more than just protest. This is the posture of prayer. He gathers his friends and he says, we need God. God to intervene now. This is a moment to get on our knees, to humble ourselves and pray and ask that the kingdom of God would come, that his will would be done in this situation, that justice and liberation would break in. So yes, it was a posture of protest, but more than that, it's the posture of prayer, which is the ultimate act of protest against the disorder that we see in the world around us. Like, can you see the imagery? Let's put them together. What we see is that there's a culture in search of a saviour raising the hand, someone, NHS, whoever, rescue us, bending the knee, God, would you break in? Some people don't acknowledge the symbolism, but if we have eyes to see, if we can read the times, what's actually happening all around us, there is a culture in desperate search of a saviour. So this is the moment we find ourselves in, and it's a fascinating moment. So let's move from the heroic to the disillusionment where hope begins to fade and disappointment creeps in. Like these moments are moments of incredible vulnerability. Let me tell you the story of a guy called Vedran Smelovich, also known as the cellist of Sarajevo. Now, he was very well known as one of the key players in the Sarajevo Philharmonic Orchestra during the 80s and 90s. At this point, the city of Sarajevo was under siege. Bombs were falling from the sky. Gunshots could be heard throughout the city. And day after day, Smelovich would practice in his home just playing the cello. And then on one day, um, 26th of May, 1992, a bomb fell right outside of his home. It shook the room where he was practicing. It shook him too. He stands up, he looks to the window and he sees a scene of total devastation. The bomb had fallen on a site of worship on a church. It was lying in pieces, in ruins, and then 22 bodies on the ground. These were 22 individuals that had been gathered in a queue to line up for bread. And while they were in the bread queue, just trying to survive the siege, the bomb had landed and taken their lives. Now, Smelovich was traumatized by this, didn't know what to do. How do you respond to a moment like that right outside his home? So the next day, 27th of May, at 4 p.m., the exact same time the bomb had gone off the day before, he dresses up in his tux and in his tails and he grabs his cello and he goes outside and he positions it right in the middle of the ruins, right in the middle of the church, and he starts playing. 
Now, we're going to play a piece of this music. It's the Adagio in G minor. And he begins to play this. And for the next 22 days, one day for every life lost, he's playing this piece, 4 p.m., like a daily rhythm, dress up, tucks and tails, grabs the cello, heads down to the ruins and starts playing. Why? Because in moments of devastation, people need hope and they need comfort. This, this piece of music is stunning. I hope you can hear it. It's a song that brings comfort. You know, for people in trauma experiencing grief, a song of comfort. But more than that, it's a song of hope. You see, for Smelovitz, this was an act of defiance. The bombs may continue to fall. We can still hear the gunshots, but the music will play on because there is hope for the future and there is hope for Sarajevo and something can emerge from the ruins and from the rubble. There is hope to cling onto because in moments of devastation, people need comfort and they need hope. We've just said there's a culture in search of a saviour. They're wanting to hear a sound. What's the sound? What's the song they're longing for? It's comfort and it is hope. Where are are people going to find the song? Where are they going to hear the sound? And honestly, the answer is in the context of worship. As the people of God gather together to celebrate their saviour and the salvation that he brings. That kind of sound has a gravitational pull of people like, I'm searching for a saviour. I can hear the sound of people that believe that the saviour has already come and he can make all things new. You see, when we worship God together, are you aware of what's happening? It's the people of God celebrating the character of God. And let me tell you something about the character of God. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, you realise that he's the source of all hope. That he's the same yesterday, today and forevermore. What he's done before, he can do again. He can rebuild from the ruins. He can bring beauty from ashes. Even a scene of death, he can break out with resurrection life. Let me just briefly remind you of our story. Let me take you all the way back to Genesis 1, where the opening words of the scriptures, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. People call this scene primordial chaos. In other words, it's chaos before life kicks in. In the ancient world, the sea, the waters represented chaos. So at the very beginning, you have chaos and disorder. The, the Hebrew word for you know, void and empty is actually tohu wabohu. Try saying it, it's beautiful. Tohu wabohu. Elsewhere in scripture, it's translated desert, wilderness, the place of nothingness. So the beginning of the story is essentially this chaos and disorder and nothing. It's almost like a scene of death, void of any life. And then God steps in and beauty emerges, creation emerges. That's the God we worship. Fast forward the story a few chapters, you get to the story of Noah, where you know, a flood comes and the waters cover the earth. In other words, it's returning to this scene of primordial chaos. And then it says that the waters recede to reveal dry land. The language is lifted straight from the book of Genesis to make the point that God is the God who can recreate. He can take a scene of death, this flood scene, and bring about life again, because that's his character, that's his nature. 
Fast forward to the scene of the Exodus as the people of God are standing in front of the waters of the Red Sea. Waters, chaos. The Egyptian army behind them, they're thinking they're about to die. We either get like destroyed by the army or we drown in the sea. Whichever way you spin it, this is a scene of death until God steps in and this scene of death becomes a scene of life. The waters part and they are liberated. Fast forward, you've got this prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, where Ezekiel has a vision of a valley of dry bones. It's a scene of death. And then God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones and say, may breath, ruach, the spirit of God, may breath enter you, may you come to life. And Ezekiel's like, okay, well, God, if you've said it, and he begins to prophesy and the dry bones come alive and form a vast army. That's a prophecy for Israel. And it's a prophecy of every local church. You know, if you read through church history, particularly revival history, revivals are what happens when the church essentially begins to embrace death and God has to step in and take a valley of dry bones and bring resurrection life. When the church experiences death, it's nearly always self-inflicted. We've neglected the word of God. We've neglected prayer. We've neglected holiness. We've turned away from God and worshiped the idols that surround us. And we begin to embrace death. Revivals aren't the reward from God of like, well done for pursuing holiness and proclaiming the gospel, embracing the word. Revivals are the grace of God because we haven't been doing any of that. And he steps in and brings life. And all of these stories find their fulfillment in the resurrection story as God in Christ breaks out of the tomb this is unbelievable I want you to get your head around this the the tomb is the womb of the new creation now you've got to tweet that somebody has to tweet that the tomb is the womb of the new creation so when God wants to start a new creation what's the start line what's the beginning of it he says, he says let's start in a graveyard No one else can do that. So let's start the story in a graveyard. I'm going to bring resurrection life because that's my nature. That's who I am. That's what I do. So if you find yourself in a moment right now losing hope, thinking this sucks, I've got no energy to go on, I've got no hope for tomorrow, I've I've lost work, relationally things are tough, I feel disconnected, I feel lonely. If you've even been contemplating suicidal thoughts, I want you to know that God is the God of hope. Time and time again throughout history, time and time again throughout the scriptures, he's taken those moments of vulnerability and he's taken a scene that feels like death and he brings resurrection life like we are grieving right now but as Paul said to the church in Thessalonica we do not grieve as those who have no hope I love this quote from a guy called Randy Alcorn let's just call him Randy Um, that's obviously a half joke not a funny one Um, but he wrote this book on heaven about the new creation Um, He's commenting on Romans 8, Paul's incredible passage about creation groaning, waiting to give birth. And this is what Randy Alcorn says. He says, there's the groaning of those dying without hope. And in contrast, the groaning of those in childbirth. Both processes are painful, yet they're very different. The one is the pain of hopeless dread and the other the pain of hopeful anticipation. The Christian's pain is very real, but it's the pain of a mother anticipating the joy of holding her child. 
You see, in worship, as you remember the character and nature of God, then any sense of hopeless dread that surrounds us in this city, that surrounds us in the world, that hopeless dread gives way to hopeful anticipation. Because we remember that God's entered moments like this in human history and he's brought about the abundance of life in the church and through the church, the surrounding culture. Lord, would you do it again? Fill us with hopeful anticipation. So... Let's get to Ezra chapter three. That was just intro, by the way. Um, Now we're actually going to get to the heart of the message. That's obviously a half joke. Um, But let's just land by looking at Ezra chapter three. So we're moving from the heroic, a culture in search of a savior, through to disillusionment, through to this hopeful rebuilding that begins when we grieve with hopeful anticipation. So let me read. And you remember the context of the story because Anna spoke on it last week. The Jews are returning, or at least some of them are returning from Babylon where they've been in exile for 70 years and they're beginning to establish home in their own land once more. This is an amazing moment. So when the seventh month came, the Israelites had settled in their towns. The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. This is like a regathering moment. Um, then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, he's the guy that's going to build from the rubble. That's obviously an awful dad joke. <laughs> it just felt so right. Who was going to build from the rubble? Anyway, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundations and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, in other words, from the Torah, the Hebrew scriptures, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid now I'm sure some of you dialed out just towards the back end of that passage but it's actually really significant essentially their first task is to rebuild an altar to worship God and they begin to re-establish all of the practices and rhythms of worship the festivals the feasts that are outlined in the Torah in the Hebrew scriptures now we read that we're like that's cool um, but it's stupid I want you to realize as you read this, like that would have been seen as foolish, stupid. But we know that God takes the foolish things to shame the wise and the weak things to shame the strong. Like this is foolish. So I tell you why. Because if you wanted to rebuild the temple and the altar of worship, you would start by rebuilding the city walls. If you didn't build the city walls first, any invading tribe or army could come in and devastate your work, undermine your work. You would start creating some safety around the city walls. And remember the prophecy from Zechariah that the new Jerusalem, the new creation will be a city without walls because God himself will be the protector. But before that, you're going to need city walls to protect you from invading tribes. But what they basically decided is like, we're just going to take a risk. Our priority isn't our own safety. We're going to forget the walls. We're actually going to forget the temple. We're going to start with the altar of worship. Our highest priority right now is worship. Because in the presence of God, that's where we experience comfort. And that's where we experience hope. And in his presence, we're transformed into his likeness. In his presence, that's where we have courage for the project that lies ahead. We are going to start with worship. 
I love that. Like before we get any ideas that we can be the rescuer, we can be the saviors and think like we need community projects and we need to do X, Y, Z in our neighborhoods. And as a church, we could be doing all these different things. And I love all of that. But the first priority is to worship God. It is the most missional thing we can do. When we worship God and proclaim that he is king, his kingdom breaks in. When we worship God, it transforms the city. They start with Worship. Everyone would have been laughing. Oh, that's so stupid. And they're like, no, this is our priority. This is our priority. Let's keep reading them because as they rebuild the altar, they then begin to create a home for God to dwell in. Notice the link. It's when we worship, we create a home for God's presence. That's what happens. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love endures forever. Now, just notice the language there. That Around them is a scene of ruin, rubble, devastation. You would expect them to be singing a song of lament, of like, oh God, where were you and where are you? But no, they're singing songs of hope. You were good, your character's unchanging, your love endures forever. Let's keep reading. All the people gave a great shout woo, of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and the Levites and family heads who'd seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. How amazing is that? I don't know about you, but like on any given day, I might do a jig of dance celebrating the goodness of God and be on my knees weeping. Like within the same hour sometimes. You know, when we regather as a church, I think that will be the sound. I know we won't be able to shout. and We'll whisper through our masks. Um, But essentially there will be this kind of within a shout of praise of God you are good like God your character's unchanging and we worship you and we celebrate that we can be together again and at the same time we'll be weeping because many of us have lost loved ones and we've lost rhythms of life that were precious to us they'll be weeping and there will be joy what's the language for that and the answer is it's grieving with hope That's what the people are doing, surrounded by rubble, led by Zerubbabel, um, and they're rebuilding the altar, and Ezra's leading the charge, and they're weeping and they're singing. It's called grieving with hope, and that's the sound that people are longing for right now. So let me close with this. Let's try and apply this. So what? You know, nice message. So what? How does it apply to my situation right now? Let me name three things briefly. Number one, that God is present in our grief. If you're grieving right now, I I need you to know this. This is the truth of scripture, not my personal opinion, that God is present in your grief. And he might feel absent because in moments of trauma, our emotions aren't the best of guides. But I can tell you that God is present because he's always present when people are in grief. I I love the story of of Mary Magdalene. And she was acquainted with grief. And one of the intense experiences of grief that she had was when her brother Lazarus died. Um, And she's standing outside the tomb and Jesus arrives on the scene. We know the story, hopefully, in John 11, that he's about to resurrect Lazarus from the grave. That's unbelievable. But what's the first thing he does? And the first thing he does is he weeps with Mary Madeline. 
that he basically, the shortest verse in the Bible, um, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. He, he knows that there's going to be a miracle. He knows that there's going to be a jig and people are going to be dancing and celebrating, but he has time to weep with Mary Magdalene. Like that, that's unbelievable. I need you to know, even though you might feel isolated and disconnected from God, that he's present with you in your grief. He's with you right now. That's his name. It's his nature, Emmanuel, God with us, even when life sucks. So firstly, God is present in our grief. Secondly, hope is birthed in the place of worship. Let me take you to another experience of grief for Mary Madeline. It's another tomb where she rocks up um, at the garden tomb. Jesus, her saviour, her Lord has been crucified and she rocks up to the garden tomb with spices. Now, what are the spices? It doesn't actually say in the text, so let's hazard a guess. Um, But the best guess would be frankincense and myrrh. Does that that ring any bells, right? It should do. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As the Magi come to visit Jesus, born as a baby, they bring these three gifts. Gold that speaks of his royalty, and frankincense and myrrh. It's like, huh? That's nice. Well, who would they do that? Um, But it's probably a prophetic sign because these would have been burial spices. So when Mary brings frankincense and myrrh, uh, underneath the text, you can almost hear echoes of the story of the birth of Jesus. She's coming with gifts to worship her saviour. Now, these spices would have been used to overcome the smell of death. It's a graveyard, rotting bodies. So she has spices to overcome the smell of death. And as she brings these as an act of worship, like the Magi, suddenly she realizes that God isn't dead. He's alive and hope breaks into this encounter. But it happens in the context of worship. She comes to worship the crucified Savior. And in that place, she realizes he is alive. You see, when we worship God, hope breaks into our surroundings. Hope breaks into our circumstances. So if you feel like you've lost hope, here's my encouragement. Bring something of worship. Bring your tears. Bring your anger. Bring all of the emotions. Bring whatever you can bring. Even if it's a tiny amount of faith that you have, bring it as a simple offering, knowing that hope can break into that moment. It's one of the reasons I'm so excited um, that we're going to be regathering as a church to worship, right? In this moment of vulnerability, believing that as we worship, that's where hope is birthed. And so many of us need hope right now. We've been trying to regather for quite some time. The Ethiopian church where we normally meet isn't ready to open again. Regent High School where we've been meeting in the mornings, they're not ready for external bookings. We've been hunting high and low and every week the doors have been shut and like, no, I'm really sorry. Hope you find somewhere and last week we had an incredible answer to prayer and here's here's the news the announcement you can do the drum roll drum roll moment that we are going to be gathering in and it's up on the screen in Scala as of the 4th of October so 9 30 services across the Sunday um, and we are so excited by this we know that some for health reasons those that are shielding won't be able to gather we know that some won't feel comfortable to regather and we completely understand that so we're going to continue this live stream for those that want to access the services from home we're also aware that there's this second wave that's potentially gathering momentum so then you know 
whether we can do this or whether like, in coming weeks we'll have to pull back. We, we don't know, but we know that right now we can regather and we feel like we need to regather. Let me just give you a very simple reason why. Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says, do not give up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Like habits form us. They actually get us at a guttural level. They grab our desires. They point our desires in a certain direction. And then we move towards those desires. There is a habit of church going. And there is a habit of not church going. There's a habit of church watching and there's a habit of not church watching. And I get it. Like some of us are just knackered by Zoom and more online content. And maybe some of us have got out of the habit of actually going to church. But the writer of the Hebrew says, no, it's really important. If you can regather, you do gather. Because when you gather together, not just a personal experience, but you gather together in the presence of God, like hope is birthed as we worship. And people that are on fire, if we're absolutely struggling, we catch something from them. There's a power of going to church regularly so let's pick up this habit because it's deeply formative so for those that are healthy and those that feel comfortable regathering put the date in the diary 4th of October 930 11:30, 4:30, 6:30. you can sign up online and yes we'll be wearing masks and we'll be at a safe distance from one another and it'll be a covid secure gathering and it'll be a ticketed event completely free but you're gonna have to sign up online and yet we need to celebrate that we can gather together as God's church and and celebrate who he is. I'll land with this then. Final so what is that we worship for the sake of the world. We worship because, as I said before, there's a culture in search of a saviour. There's a culture that are experiencing disruption and devastation. And they are looking for hope. They are desperate for hope. Where are they going to find hope? Honestly, like as the followers of God, we have to believe that they will find hope as they hear the people of God celebrating the character of a God, that he's the God that saves. He's the God that redeems. He's the God that can take situations that feel like death and bring about resurrection life. As they hear that sound, the sound of those grieving, but with hopeful anticipation, the sound of joy, do you think that will have a gravitational pull? I'm telling you, it will have a gravitational pull because people are desperate for comfort and they're desperate for joy and they are desperate for hope. We worship not just for our own sake. We worship to glorify God because he's worthy and we worship as a witness to the world that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. So I want to call KXC in this season to wholehearted, passionate worship for the sake of the world.